Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm so glad that we're going to continue our study in First Thessalonians with my friend and Bible teacher, Jeff Verdorn. Uh, we are going to do this in probably about seven or eight sessions, and I think we're up to about number three or four, I'm guessing. Jeff, number three, I think. Jeff, number three. nice to have you back uh, in studio talking about First Thessalonians chapter 2. Before we get to that, maybe we can do a quick recap of what we talked about last time. Sure. Well, hi, Bill. Good afternoon. We focused last time, uh, we kind of got stuck on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which says, And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, Jesus rescues us from this coming wrath, which is the coming tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world. And because this verse says that he rescues us from this, I pointed out and described that this is strong evidence for what is called a pre-tribulation rapture, that the rapture of the church, this day where, where God is going to catch up his saints up to heaven, comes prior to the wrath that is to come. We then looked and saw that this is most certainly a reference to the rapture because in every chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there is a reference to the rapture of the church, except for the final chapter in 2 Thessalonians, which is basically, you know, saying goodbye um, to, to the Thessalonians. But we walked through each and every one of those, including one of the core passages on the rapture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, where God tells us that there is this day coming when the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So this day is is a unique day. It's going to be a day when the church is caught up or snatched up or snatched away. Uh, the Greek word is harpazo. The Latin word is rapturo, which is where we get the name of this day, this event called the rapture. And it is really resurrection day. And over the course of this study, we will keep running into this event called the rapture of the church. We also made a distinction, by the way, between the rapture of the church and the second coming. At the second coming, we see Christ returning to earth and all of his saints, the armies of heaven, were following him. And at the rapture, the church is being caught up and going up into the air to meet the Lord in the air. So the direction of travel is even different between the rapture and the second coming. And so we can know that these are two separate events. But know this, whatever you think or whatever you believe about the rapture of the church, you need to account for this event where we will be caught up together with them 
in the clouds. And in fact, I actually think this fits right into Jesus's own words where he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. So once again, that is an event where the church is caught up and brought up to heaven. We call that the rapture of the church. And according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 anyway, that happens uh, before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. And I think that's a reference to the seven-year tribulation period that's coming upon the earth. So we pick up, we also covered, by the way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So we're picking up today in verse 3. All right. May I read that passage? Yeah, read, start in 3 and go through verse 8. All right. I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So there's a there's a description here. You're, you're seeing Paul's heart for his ministry and for the Thessalonians that they are ministering to. Uh, but before we get to some of the ways he describes his ministry in this passage here, I want to focus on the phrase he used in verse 4, which was where he says, we speak as those approved by God. I just, I love that line. Paul says he is approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. God has entrusted Paul with the gospel and is approved by God. Now, remember, Paul was the chosen apostle to the Gentiles. Acts 9 talks about that Paul was the the chosen uh, apostle to the Gentile world. But notice here, he says, we, we speak as those approved by God. The we, we, we know from chapter 1, verse 1, is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So they are all approved by God. And we, as Christians, by the way, are also approved by God. We, as believers in Christ Jesus, are accepted by God. Not because we haven't sinned or we're somehow special or, you know, anything else, but but because we have received forgiveness from God through faith in Christ, we now can come before God as completely approved and accepted by him. Amazing. I know. I look around the world and I don't think most people have a true sense of belonging. I don't think they feel accepted. I think I think one issue that a lot of people have is this kind of this feeling of of I'm unacceptable to people. Mm. I'm I'm insecure in my identity of who I am. I'm lonely, I'm separated, I don't have a sense of belonging. There's a sense of isolation. This is especially <laughs> true after the years that we've just come off of, right? Yeah. But I think that is one of the issues of the world. I I hear young people's testimony sometimes at, in a church setting or whatever, 
And, you know, I hear the theme over and over and over again that people just feel like they're not accepted, like, mm-hmm. like I don't belong. And one, one of the great truths of, of biblical Christianity is that once you believe in Christ, you are absolutely approved and accepted and belong in the family of God. You are a child of the Most High God. You are completely accepted. I think we need stickers that as soon as someone believes in Christ, we slap a sticker right on them that says approved. You know those <laughs> stickers you see sometimes on products? Mm-hmm. We are approved by God. And 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 by the way, his stamp of approval is on you. First, uh, Ephesians 1 talks about that we've been sealed with his Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in Christ Jesus. That is his stamp of approval on you. You're accepted. You're a child of God. So let's look at Paul's ministry now. He talks about his pure motives. He talks about that he didn't play any games. He didn't use flattery and that he's not trying to please men, but God. Now, are you a man pleaser or a God pleaser? I mean, you as in us in general, are we trying to gain the approval of men or gain the approval of God? Galatians 1, Paul says this, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I am still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And in John 5, Jesus himself says, I did not receive glory from men, which is the NASB, but I, I love the New Living Translation on this verse, John 5:41. He says this, Jesus says, quote, Your approval means nothing to me. Mm, I like this says. Because whose will was Jesus doing? He was doing the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. He wasn't looking for the approval of any man. I don't think Paul was looking for the approval of any man. And I don't think we should be looking for the approval of any man because we have the approval of God. I heard a pastor once say, Jeff, that Paul's basic stance was, I have a low opinion of me and I have a low opinion of your opinion of me. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. If, you, if you're worried about what other people think, you're never going to be satisfied. That's true. And you're never going to meet their expectations, by the mm-hmm. way. So he says he was not greedy in his ministry. Uh, they weren't looking for financial gain from these people, but they cared for them. They loved them, They said. They, he says. And in fact, he says he shared their lives with them. This is someone who's really committed to the ministry that he has been given and to the people he is ministering to. I know that the body continues to work like this today. I mean, I, I really do. I, I've, I've heard many stories from many people from around the world uh, of the body of Christ caring for people, loving for people, uh, loving people, sharing their lives with people. But I, I wonder, is this how you would describe the institutional church in our country? Mm-hmm. Is this, is your church, is the description that Paul just gave of his ministry, it, it, would you use those same words to describe your church? I know the body of Christ, his true church is all of us, all of us who are believers, and and this is happening. But I wonder if the institutional church, the local church, if that is a description of the local church. And I think in some cases it is, but I think in many cases it, it's not. I think there's too many churches who are interested in in entertaining and programming for their their audience as opposed to 
truly loving and giving their lives to those who need it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but let's go to verse 9. Read verse 9. Verse 9. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 9. Yeah. Uh, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. That's pretty direct. It is. And it gives us actually great insight into Paul's attitude about a, a whole bunch of things. He says he worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone. And again, I have to ask, is this the, is this the, the modern church? Is this the modern view of those in ministry, whatever your ministry is, ar- ar- around different, different... I have a list in my Bible. It is, um, actually, it's on page 1763 of my Bible, and it's all the places where God talks about money in the New Testament. This is, there's actually a really long list, and we're going to walk through some of those today to talk about, okay, how does the Christian person in ministry, how should they view this whole money thing, and how should we as participants of the body of Christ view our giving, both to those in ministry and to the needy, which is uh, a topic that comes up also often Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. So Paul elsewhere, just to confirm what he's saying to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll get to this, he says this, in fact, you yourselves know how necessary it is for you to imitate us because we were not idle among you. We never ate anyone's bread without paying for it. Instead, with labor and hardship, we worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Are you, are you catching the theme here? Yeah, I am. Acts 20 says this, you yourself know that these hands have provided for my needs and for those who are with me. Acts 18, it says Paul was a tent maker. That was his vocation. That's how he made money. Yet, is this the common model for missionaries, missions, full-time people and full-time missionary Today, I, you know, for many, yes, but for many, no. Yet, before we're too hard on any of this, we turn to 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. Hmm. So there were many believers around Paul that said, hey, you've invested in us spiritually. We are going to bless you materially to support your life and your ministry and what you're doing. Hmm. This is kind of the sowing and reaping concept, which we'll talk about a little bit today as well, that as Paul sowed spiritually into people's lives, he did reap a material benefit. But that happened from the people responding to Paul just out of thanksgiving and blessing back to him. He, in the meantime, his attitude was, I'm going to work night and day, so I'm not a burden to anybody and yet people still freely gave to his ministry. All right, Jeff, I want to talk about this some more. This is a very interesting topic. It's always a good time to show Christ's love to a hurting world through acts of kindness. So you can join our Kindness Always initiative at myfaithradio.com. You should check it out. We are studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today with Jeff Verdorn, continuing our study in the series of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll be right back.
I hope you didn't go anywhere because we're having a great study with Jeff Redorn. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to continue this through both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We're not going to pull it off today, but we're going to get through it course of the next couple of months, and I think you're going to be glad you hung in there with us. If you missed any of these episodes, you can always find them at MyFaithRadio.com. So, all right, Jeff, let's pick it up. Well, we were talking about those in full-time ministry and kind of what's the proper attitude? What's the proper approach? We know that God's work needs funding. God knows that. Of course. Right? So it's kind of the attitude, the heart of this thing. And 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 are most people in ministry, do you, or do you see yourself as a burden to others, Paul said he didn't want to be a burden to anyone. Are you receiving kind of full-time support for your ministry, but know you're spending less than full-time doing ministry? Can you make tents? What can you do? How can you support your ministry? I, I think we need to look at this a different way. At the same time, however, I mean, there's always two sides to this. At the same time, Paul clearly says that it's okay to make a living preaching the gospel. So I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 9 7 through 10, and Paul says this, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Mm -hmm. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. Do you see that picture there? Mm -hmm. As the ox is treading its grain, it can eat some of the, the grain that it's tread. Is this about an oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Uh, this concept, by the way, is also mentioned in, in 1 Timothy 5, but clearly God doesn't mind people making their living from the gospel. Bill, over, over the break... You mentioned a story of a, of a friend of yours. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Well, again? his name is Bill as well. He lives in Fort Worth. He works for a, a great ministry called Search Ministries. And I went uh, to a home Bible study with him one night, and there must have been, I don't know, 20, 20 people there surrounded um, around him. And he, they, they listened to his teaching, and they had great interaction and great fellowship. And as we're out walking out to the car, and I said, so... I didn't see the point in the evening where <laughs> where you suggested that they could support you in any way. There was no ask. No, there was nothing like that. And he said, oh, oh, no, I, I haven't asked ever in 30 years. Wow. I said, well, how does it work? And he said, well, usually at the end, people feel moved by the Spirit or they're so appreciative. They say, this is great. Okay, now, how do we... How do we do this? How do we help you? What What do we do? Do we Do we donate? What? And he said, "That's just been their response for thirty years. That, Never that, asked once for money." Wow, that sounds exactly what Paul was just describing. That the people that gave to him felt thrilled to share in his ministry, yeah. and these people seemed very thrilled thrilled to share in 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 Bill's ministry. I, I, this is the George Mueller approach, by the way. Uh, if you've ever read George Mueller's uh, biography or autobiography, I guess. He talks about, he was, lived in England in the mid-1800s. He started some orphanages, and he also says that he never asked for money. Not once. He would describe what he was doing. He would, uh, he would proclaim what God has done in his ministry. He would talk about his needs or his plans or what he wanted, was hoping to do, and then 
people led by God just gave money to him, and he ended up building an orphanage that served hundreds, thousands. 10,000 orphans. It Over its lifetime, yep. it served 10,000 10, orphans. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. There is even a story, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to, I hope I get this right. There was one day early on where they had no food in, in their whole place for oh. the kids, and they were about to wake up. I love this story. And a milk <laughs> truck breaks yeah. down mm-hmm. in front of, they were started praying, yep. Lord, we don't know what to do. How, what are we going to feed to the kids today? And so on. And a milk truck breaks down right outside their orphanage and a guy knocks on the door and says, hey, my truck just broke down. I got a bunch of eggs and cheese and whatnot. Can you guys use it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, is that a great story of God's story. economy or what? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord will provide. Um, and remember, we, I think in ministry and in the church, and, and I'm, I've been involved in lots of ministries and stuff over the years, and it's it fascinates me how, you know, I, I don't think just because one ministry misses their budget that it's a crisis for suddenly everybody who supports it to give sacrificially. Maybe you overestimated your budget. Maybe you need to change. Why do we want to outspend what God is providing? He knows we need money. Mm-hmm. And if we are praying to him and we are serving others, and we are feeding people spiritually, I I have seen it over and over and over that God then provides materially for for these ministries. Now, Jeff, I'm also one to say I am not opposed to the ask, because you have not, because you ask not. And because we're doing the work of the Lord, I I never have any difficulty um, asking for support for Faith Radio because of the, the reach we're having and the impact we're having. Yeah, and and I would even argue that Faith Radio is unique in in this sense. You are spiritually sowing into so many people's lives, but it's 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 not direct. You you're not face to face with the people like Paul was. So right. to get on air a couple times a year like Faith Radio does and says, "Hey, this is some of the stories of people who are being impacted by the ministries of Faith Radio. Can you help us do that?" Mm-hmm. I, I think that's totally appropriate. Yeah. So the response is amazing. All right, Jeff, can you believe this? We're already at the break. I know, we're going to need more than six or seven of these sessions to get through two books. (laughs) We will do that then. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our study with Jeff Verdorn. We are studying 1 Thessalonians. We're right now in chapter 2. You can take your favorite Faith Radio shows with you wherever you go. Just so you know, you can listen on your own time schedule, whenever you want. Maybe you're going out for a walk in the evening and you missed the broadcast during the day. The great news is, is you can catch these shows on the Faith Radio podcast. And all you got to do is uh, subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. I always say go to our app at myfaithradio.com. They're all right there. All right, we'll take a short break and be right back with Jeff. Let's get it started. It is started. That's the good news. We're in First Thessalonians chapter two with Jeff Verdorn, continuing our, our teaching series 
on First and Second Thessalonians. All right, Jeff, this is great. I, I love what we're talking today about, and right now we're discussing some finances, which I find to be a very interesting topic. Is your pen light up? It, is your pen my pen up? does light up. That's actually. so weird. It's I, a, a adult and teen challenge uh, pen, and yeah, you click it once, oh, and then it that's lights pretty up. Cool. There's a little flashlight at the end too, so you can oh, see what oh, you're writing. I'm seeing there. You got a, a pen that's Sorry, all lit up. It's very distracting you. to me. It's very distracting. <laughs> you're like a cat here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever do that to okay, me again. Right. Not in the studio. All right. So we're talking money. We were just talking over the break that you know I don't think the church talks about finances enough, and and especially I don't think from a biblical biblical perspective enough. Here we're, we're kind of in Thessalonians where Paul says he wasn't a burden to anybody, and we're just talking about those in ministry and their attitude, but also now kind of switch to the body. How should we view our giving? And for those in the body, we have two opportunities to kind of give that Paul is talking about here. One, giving to the works of the ministry, which is what we've really been talking about, to the, for the service of the Lord's people. This is Paul's work that he was doing, kingdom work. So you give to your local church, you give to ministries, you give to missionaries, and, and so on. There's countless ways that you can give to God's kingdom. Two, giving to those in need, uh, especially in the body. So let's look and review some of the information in the New Testament about how the church, how the early church modeled this giving. Acts 4 says this, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Now, this was not without limits, however, as we're going to see some of Paul's other instructions and conditions that he gives about this kind of giving. But he says in, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, that these collections were made for the Lord's people. This is other believers who were in need. Do what I told the Galatian church to do on the first day of every week, Sunday. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Now, this is not a collection for Paul and his ministry. This is a collection for other believers in other churches that need financial help. Then, when I arrive, he says, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approved and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. This was for the people of the church, those in need. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, gives instructions about widows, for example. Widows are some of the most, um, they, they, they really need support from the church. But even widows, Paul makes very specific instructions. He says, don't just put young widows on this list of those who are going to receive support from the church because they should marry. Otherwise, he says, they'll become busybodies. Uh, so there's an interesting uh, criteria that Paul gives. He hmm. also says they need to be over 60 years old and be well known for their good deeds. So you can see Paul says, just don't give to anybody. Man, our, our governmental welfare system, I think, could learn a lot from Paul's exhortations of the church. And by the way, I think the church has has given up their responsibility to help those within the church because our government programs are so robust. There's so much money in these systems that I think many in the church have just said, well, that's the government's responsibility to care for these people. And so we don't really need to. So let's walk through a few principles. Oh, by the way, he also says about men, 
that if you're able-bodied, they should not get support either. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, mm. he says. And, uh, and so we have this idea of sowing and reaping. Um, 1 Corinthians 9. Let me read this passage. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He accepted the gift, but it did not but he did not demand the gift. Second Corinthians nine six says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So sow generously. I love 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 7. This is what comes next after the sowing and reaping principle. He says this about giving. So Paul says, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not out of regret or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your store of seed and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous on every occasion so that through us, your giving will produce thanksgiving from God. So isn't that the New Testament principle for giving? It's a beautiful picture. In the Old Testament, did you hear he said not out of compulsion or obligation? That is exactly what the tithe was in the Old Testament. It was an obligation for Israel to give the first tenth of what they produced to God. Remember to the Levites who did not have an inheritance of the land, but they were the ones who basically ran the temple, and that tenth was to go uh, for their purposes. By the way, there was actually another tithe every three years of 10%, which meant that it was really 13% that every Israelite and all of the other tribes was responsible for giving back to the Levites for their support. But in the New Testament, we are not under the law. The, the, I think Scripture is clear that the, the New Testament concept is not a regulation or the law, but this principle of sowing and reaping. We are to give, but we are to give cheerfully as we see the needs, not as a fixed percentage of our income, but out of the cheerfulness of our heart. You told a story over the break that I think is so beautiful of how the early church should think about this giving kind of concept. Jeff, I was in Los Angeles, and I went to the Reverend E.V. Hills Church, which is um, in Watts, which is quite a dangerous neighborhood. Yeah, tough, very uh, significant neighborhood with uh, back in the Rodney King days and some of the riots that happened and so on. And the parking lot to the church had about a nine-foot fence. So once you pulled in, there there were a number of uh, parking lot attendants that kept, kept an eye on your car, despite the fact you pulled into a parking lot with a nine-foot fence. Wow. And the service was just under four hours. It started at 10 and it ended, you know, sometime after one thirty. And I was almost sad it was over 
because it was such an experience. But uh, Pastor Hill said, all right, we've got some needs here in the church. Uh, I know uh, I heard Mrs. Johnson, uh, her muffler has gone out and she, and she can't drive her car. And I don't know if there are any mechanics here or is there a, a muffler shop owner? And if not, we got to raise some money for Mrs. Johnson. So let's, uh, let's start there. Who can, uh, who can give $50 towards her muffler? And they, they raised the money for her muffler instantly. Then they moved on to the next need of someone in the church. And you would not have believed the joy and, and the, the thrill that everyone was having hmm. meeting the needs of other people in the church. Hmm. It was really cool. You know, I have a feeling that's exactly what the early church looked like. Yeah. That each one gave generously as people had need. Um, yeah, and, and, and we don't do this without discernment, right? If, right? if someone shows up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and always seems to have need after need after need, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe you start wondering, okay, are they just, you know, taking us or not? Right. But we know this is something, by the way, that governments can't do. They can't be discerning in their giving of support to people, That's right? True. But the church can be. You know, not every beggar is in need. You know, I've watched all these shows about, you know, they, they take their iPhones, go back to their car, go back to the house. It's, we know if you watch Slumdog Millionaire, we know there are scams and mm-hmm. systems. Like that. So look, be discerning on how you give, but give generously to those in the body that have need. Um, we also don't want to empower or, uh, you know, basically equip someone to help them with, uh, say, addictions or gambling addictions or someone be right. discerning in that as well. But let's let's put Mrs. Johnson, if that was her name, in context, and let's say she's been part of that fellowship for eight years. Absolutely, everybody knows her, everybody loves her, and all of a sudden she's got a muffler issue. Nobody thinks, oh, what if she's trying to scam no, us? Absolutely not. Yeah. So that and that's that discernment that we're just talking yeah. about. So, so look, here's a few principles I think, and, and like I said earlier, I don't think these kind of giving financial principles are talked about enough. So let's go through some. We should. Give to the work of the kingdom, number one, especially those who have sown spiritually into us. If you've been blessed by a ministry, by a teaching, whatever, well, support them. Be a blessing back to them for how you've been blessed through them. Let them reap a material harvest from you. We should also give to the body in need. Bill, your story is perfect. That is how the the, the early church truly worked. For those truly in need... Be discerning, of course, but you know when people have true needs, and uh, and and be generous. Uh, if you borrow, if you lend money to someone, by the way, Scripture says there's other passages. Uh, you know, are we going to charge interest, and are we going to expect it back? You know, maybe you just make it a gift to the person. Um, I have <laughs> I have some good experiences lending money to believers, and I have some bad experiences lending money to believers. Uh, we should be. We should give generously, not reluctantly. This is the Corinthians passage I read about giving, uh, being a cheerful giver, not out of obligation, which is what the tithe was, but as you have decided in your heart. How do you decide in your heart? I think you pray. If you know of a need of a ministry or someone in the body that needs need, pray for it. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, let's not overlook the uh, pastors. Pastors are sometimes living on very thin margins and they don't have much, if any, in their, you know, sometimes when you honor your pastor with a gift card or something like that, that makes a world of difference um, in their life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that old, uh, you know, kind of the schoolhouse model where the pastor is living in the in the house right next to the church. And, mm-hmm. you know, he and his wife are the ones who clean the windows and, you know, pick up after Sundays and are cooking food and, and yeah. are doing all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, there are many, many pastors who are doing all that and more. And so, yes, if you've been blessed spiritually by them, uh, be a material blessing back to them. Mm-hmm. Acts twenty thirty five. it's more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, how much? Well, that's up to you to decide. As you pray about an opportunity, as you talk to God, ask him, how much, Lord, will you, do you want me to give to this cause, to this person, to this whatever? And you know what? I have found that he will answer that and you will be happy and cheerful to give the amount that he lays on his on your heart, uh, trust him in this. Um, and and if you can't give it cheerfully, I would argue then don't give it cheerfully. Whatever you can give cheerfully. Now, if you're only giving one tenth of one percent of your income to the work of God and to the needs of others within the body, I'm not going to have a conversation to you about percentages of your income. I'm going to have a faith conversation. How much are you really trusting in God in your in your walk? And, you know, the old adage is if you really want to know what someone believes and what they trust in, check their checkbook, right? Because if you're giving to kingdom purposes, chances are those are the things that are important in your life. But be discerning about it. Not every ministry out there is worthy, by the way. There's some great tools out there for you to check, like the uh, ECFA is the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Uh, they evaluate ministries all over the country, uh, and so check things. There's other things. Check a ministry's statement of faith. Do you understand and agree with their statement of faith? Holy, ho- hopefully they have a strong statement of faith with some of the key essential elements of truth of the New Testament. Volunteer for a ministry. Get to know them uh, before you start giving financially. Give your time first and get to know them. Get to know the people. Get to know their mission and their work and then maybe give financially to them. Um, So in the end, giving, uh, I think I got this point across, it's a heart thing. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Store up your treasures in heaven, Jesus says, because where your treasures are, that is where your heart is also. So give to kingdom work. Uh, Check your checkbook. See if it's a priority for you to share in the ministry of the saints and to help the the saints who are are in need. Mm-hmm. All right. Well done. Um. One last thing. Do we have time before the break, or do you want to? We have time for one last thing. One last thing before the break. Yes. Uh, finally, remember that there there is nothing in Scripture that talks about how much money you should have or can have or be wealthy or not to be a good Christian. Jesus said. And I think some people take this the wrong way. Matthew 19, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a principle of Scripture, not an absolute. Many rich people go to heaven. The problem with being rich, however, is that they often trust in their wealth instead of trusting in the Lord. When you have nothing, it tends to be a little easier to trust in the Lord than in your wealth that you don't have. But for the rich, they tend to trust in the wealth. That's, I think, the, 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 the lesson from the rich young ruler who says, 
comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, If you want to be perfect, go sell everything you got and give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, we don't have to get too far into the New Testament to understand it's not a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven to give away everything you have. Entrance into heaven is by faith and faith alone. I think Jesus is responding to the condition of this man's heart. He was trusting in his wealth and didn't truly want to trust in Christ for his salvation, for his eternal life. So, yes, rich and poor believe in Jesus, and both rich and poor can be saved. I think the key is whatever your lot, whatever your condition, Paul says that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. To me, contentment is is one of the, the, the greatest biblical virtues of all. If you are content and thankful for you, what you have, you're probably in a very good place, whether it be plenty, which Paul knew, or whether it would be in want, which Paul also knew. He tells us he learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. All right, we'll take a break and be back with Jeff Dorn as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Be right back. time left in this teaching. I think we're going to extend this uh, maybe another session or two more than we thought we were going to do. <laughs> or three. Yeah. Or three or four, yeah. we got a bunch to go. We're going to cover First Thessalonians uh, 1 and 2, and we're already, we're just in one, chapter 2 right now, so. Um, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Why don't I read a couple more verses, Jeff, if you're ready for me. Yeah, 10 through 12. 10 through 12. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless you were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So let's spend the last minutes here focusing on this phrase, to live lives worthy of God. This is our calling this is, it's, it's called holy living. There are many, many verses in the New Testament that call us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. Here's the picture. He has made us holy and blameless in his sight. This is what theologians call imputed righteousness. We weren't righteous before we were saved, but after we were saved, God imputes his righteousness onto us after forgiving us and cleansing us, washing us clean, making us new, giving us a new birth, giving us life, being born again. Uh, All of these things that happen at the moment of salvation are justification. He has made us righteous. We are now holy and blameless in his sight. Now that he's made us holy and blameless, 
He calls us to live holy and blameless. There's a key distinction here. When God says that he's made us holy and blameless, I think there's a lot of Christians who don't accept that. They don't accept that as their new identity because they're not living their lives in a perfectly holy and righteous way. Well, guess what? Only Christ lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. But nonetheless, he's made you holy. Now he wants you to live holy. This word holy, by the way, is to to be set apart for special purposes. God has called you to live a set-apart life for him to be his witnesses in this world. So Ephesians 4.1, I love this passage. It says, as a prisoner of the Lord, Paul was actually in prison when he was writing this, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, a couple things here. We've already received it. In other words, our charge from God, we've already received. It's all over the New Testament. Live out your calling worthy of your calling that you have received. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15, but just as he who called you is holy, that's God, so be holy in all you do. Be set apart in all you do. I think some want to take this word holy and and translate it in, in some kind of uh, moral scale, like I'm going to be living morally before God. And that, that's a part of it. But you're missing the point here, I think. The point is, is that the word holy, hagios, means set apart. He set apart Israel by giving them the law, having them be a light, if you will, to all the nations so that the nations may know that God is the Lord. In the same way, he's given us the spirit of God for those who are saved, for those who are born again. He's made us holy. He's set us apart to be light in this dark world so that all may know that he is God. Are you set apart for God's purposes? That is what holy means. In fact, the word saint in Scripture is actually the same Greek word, and it just means holy. And so we are, according to Romans 12, should not conform to the patterns of this world. We should put to death, therefore, what belongs to our old earthly nature, that life that we used to live, Paul says in Colossians 3, the life you used to live, but now rid yourself of all these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and so on. Don't lie to each other. Since you have taken off the old self, that's the unsaved self, with all of its practices, and put on this new self who is now a saint created in Christ Jesus. That's the picture. This is such a critical concept that we understand that God has made us holy through salvation, that's his work, and now he calls us to live holy. When you are saved, like I said, he wa- have you ever canned fruit? No. Have you ever canned anything? Mm, no. Okay, when I visited my grandmother in southern Minnesota, she used to can all kinds of stuff, and she had a cellar full of canned foods. This was prepping 100 years ago, mm-hmm. but it was just normal living. It wasn't called prepping. It right. was, that's was just what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing you do when you can food, you take the jar and you sterilize it. Mm. Generally, you steam it. Okay. And it cleanses it out. Well, what is that a picture of? Forgiveness. God cleanses us. Then you fill it with all this 
food, stuff, fruit, whatever it is, and, and that's the filling. We are now filled. We are united with Christ. We're filled with his presence. He fills us with this new life. And then you seal the jar so that nothing bad will ever get into it. And that sealing, they would often pour wax on it, then put the lid, and they'd screw the top down. And now you've got, and that's the sealing of the Holy Spirit, so that mm. nothing can spoil what's inside. It's kind of a cool picture I of like salvation. That. God washes us clean with the blood of Christ. He fills us with this new life and seals us with the Holy Spirit. I just like the canned food in your grandma's root cellar, too. That's that's a yeah. It was it was fun. I always cool. used to go down there. All right, so, it's cool. What, what do I have? 30 seconds? 30 seconds. I do. So that is the picture. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in you. God lives in you. He's made you holy. So be holy in all you do. Set apart. Perfect. Thank you, Jeff. Always great to have you in studio with me. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for spending time with me. If you missed any of this, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check it out. I look forward to being with you again Tomorrow, as you lay your head on the pillow tonight, know that God loves you and has got a plan for your life that's spectacular. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.